Pluralistic Rabbinical Seminary presents the Innovation Podcast. All right. Thank you, everyone, for participating in the first episode. This is Rabbi Patrick Folier, and uh, I have a special guest with me today, hopefully more than just today or tonight, I should say, given the time we're recording, who has looked at our slide deck for this week um, and has given lots of interesting opinions, including one about McDonald's milkshakes, which makes me incredibly happy. So she's going to be learning with us today. This is my friend, Sarah. Hi, everyone. Yes, my, my name's Sarah. Um, and uh, Rabbi Patrick and I know each other. We actually traveled to Israel together around this time last year. Um, but I'm actually a marketer by day, and I'm kind of specializing in internal innovation in some organizations. So I'm excited to be with you guys today. Well, we're certainly excited to have you as well. So uh, class, what we're going to do is go through the slides. Uh, We're going to banter a little bit, and we're going to kind of figure out where we need to go in terms of talking about markets. So let's review a little bit the idea of idea validation. So the concept here is, yes, you have a great idea. Yes, you're going to change the world, but maybe it would be a good idea for you to know first if that's necessarily the way you need to uh, uh, improve the world, make it better. Your tikkun olam is wonderful, but let's make sure it's effective tikkun olam. So these are the six concepts that we want you to know, market being the first one. So market, the people who have been emailing us for five years, rabbis who are looking for more work. Obviously, the example I'm using is the one from last week, which is Darshan Yeshiva, right? Of all of the ideas that I spitballed out in what was originally called Punctura, this is the one that stuck. Why? Because we have a market and it worked. What was the problem? Various problems. It's okay. You don't have to solve one problem if you solve for the market. That's why we're starting there as opposed to what's the problem you're trying to solve. That's a controversial way of doing it. Maybe Sarah will have an alternative opinion along with any of these things, but we'll see. So various issues we discovered when launching Darshan Yeshiva. So no rabbi in your community to help with conversion. Scheduling issues. What do you do if you work all of the times when rabbis are available or when classes are available? Maybe in your community, there's only a reform congregation and you think of yourself as conservative or reconstructionist or orthodox, right? We are helping to solve those various issues. And then just brick and mortar community size issues and what happens when a community is either too big or too small to suit your needs and all of that. Uh, So the current, they research uh, uh, over and over again to no avail. Uh, attempting to hang a shingle online. So here's what I mean by that. It's the few current sort of what you might call competitors. I don't necessarily like the word competitors, but other people in the marketplace. Uh, they research over and over again. So they're they're researching constantly to find something, find someone, and they don't find that person. And the people they do find, you know, this is before us, Uh, are people who are hanging a shingle online. So it's one rabbi of one movement in one place who's providing conversion. But maybe that's not what you need. Maybe they're not providing exactly what you want, and so it doesn't work out. So how do we resolve that? First of all, it's by having a multiplicity, denominationally, location, 
what we call hashkafa, which is sort of the worldview uh, of rabbis. We have a secular uh, Bible scholar who, you know, doesn't believe in God, but is Shomer Shabbat. We have, this is absolutely true, uh, Zema Yore, one of my favorite people in the world. Um, but we also have super liberal uh, reform rabbis, and then we have more traditional conservative rabbis. So there's a flavor in there uh, of someone who, who can be there for you, and also location-wise. Also, when you go online and you Google distance learning conversion to Judaism, we're the number one, right? So you don't have to search over and over. If we don't have it, it's probably not right for you. And that, that's kind of a, a Google trick, but that's the idea. Uh, so, you know, why does it work? Why us? Well, we're marketing obsessed. We're super transparent. You know, how much things are going to cost, how long it's going to take. Uh, the other rabbis in that sort of area, that, that sort of study area of conversion, it would say, I do conversions, please email. Well, with us, it's here's how long it takes. Here's how much it costs. Here's who the person is. Here's where they live. Here's what that involves. Um, and being startup oriented, I think, was very valuable for us as well. So the biggest hurdle will be financial for people. $800 is the starting uh, program cost, right? So, and that's the scholarship level. You can't afford $80 a month for 10 months. That's going to be a problem. And the issue though is we can't sacrifice that. So, you know, we want to be able to pay our rabbis and pay them well. And so that's that. And now you have to hear a car honking in the background. My apologies, uh, Reboisai. So um, what's great is the question of can you actually fulfill what you are seeking to do? So most of the work is in the hands of con compensated rabbis, not us. So I'm not sitting there personally as executive director of Darshan Yeshiva doing every single conversion. Someone else is doing it. It's the Uber model. It's the idea of a platform as opposed to one person whose job it is to drive everywhere in the known world uh, to, to pick you up. Um, and that's important. So it's not about us doing everything for everyone all the time. It's about we can help you to find the person who will do something for you right now. So that is what we talked about in idea validation. Sarah, I know I just lobbed a ton at you. <laughs> do you want to break any of this apart? Tell me how horribly I'm wrong I am, or do you have any clever... Uh, or not so clever ideas here? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, I'm really interested about the current space and how researching over and over is kind of not a great recipe for success. Um, I mean, how how does how is that different than what you guys do? And how are you the first result on Google? And what what does that matter? Yeah, so it helps because what happens when you are a student who potentially wants to convert to Judaism and you're searching over and over and over again on Google, you will get to the 30th or 40th page trying to find that perfect rabbi who's like right down the street from you, is movementally oriented towards you, who doesn't have hangups about whatever your particular life situation is. And so you find that rabbi, and then you find a GeoCities website from about <laughs> 1995, and sure enough, like their uh, AOL account was canceled a long time ago, Yeah. right? Um, whereas with us, by virtue of saying it's not going to be one rabbi in one place, like me or some other person, um, by having a diversity of rabbis, Google is going to catch all of that. So 
we have a rabbi in Baltimore, Google, rabbi in Baltimore, conversion, boom, mm-hmm. that's us. Uh, you know, reconstructionist LGBT conversion in wherever. Okay, great. So if you get past the first page of Google and you, if you have a lot of things that you're looking for, if you need a rabbi in a particular place, if you have certain things going on uh, that make your situation unique and you pass us on the first page and you get to the second page, you're probably not going to find um, and so we save people a lot of trouble in that way uh, by kind of being the, the best that we can be. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Cool. All right, next slide. Okay, so what's a market? The market, in my opinion, is the whole point. It's who you serve. Um, it's not necessarily about the problem that they have. Um, again, that's a controversial opinion on some level. Um People uh, who have a problem that needs to be dealt with, okay, that's, that's usually where people start. It's, I want to create this idea, thinking about the people that they want to, to help, which is a good thing, but they're attaching the person and the problem. And the question, of course, is people don't necessarily have that problem or that need. Problem is a negative word. Need might be another word um, all the time, right? So if I need to get married and I need a rabbi, I am not the person who needs a rabbi for the rest of my life. I need a rabbi for that one particular thing. So I am a market. I am a person who is looking for a rabbi uh, for uh, marriage officiation, right? That is that is the market, right? It is not, I am a Jew who needs a rabbi, right? It's not that broad. <laughs> so uh, solutions can reach multiple people on multiple levels. So I use the example of the rabbi and students uh, in the conversion program. So what's the solution for rabbis? It's work. Like we provide work. If you're a rabbi who is retiring, but you want to stay in it, you want to do something you're passionate about. When we were promoting Darshan Yeshiva for employment, I said, can you imagine a rabbinical job where there's no board, no buildings, no president? All you have to do is be a rabbi, and we'll pay you every month to do it. That sounds good. Boom, right? Yeah, <laughs> sounds like an awesome job. Sounds like a good job to me. I'll take it. Uh, So that's solving a rabbi problem. That doesn't solve a student problem, but the student problem is that rabbi needs to work with that student. So we did some things that the rabbis didn't like and the students didn't like. We charged money. Students don't like having to pay all the time, right? Sometimes things are expensive. Rabbis don't necessarily want to be told you will be paid every month based on the number of students you have based on what they pay. Um, and by the way, you have to complete their conversion in 10 months. Some, we had one rabbi who said, well, can't you just give me a retainer? Like, can't you pay me a salary every month? And I said, no. And this was a great rabbi who actually is still with us. But I said, no, that's not how this works. Well, what if a conversion needs to take more than a year? I said, it doesn't. That is, that is what we are going to do because you can't tell someone we have this unique, exciting program and it takes however long we want it to. That's not fair. Um, so multiple solutions. Uh, the market you serve may not always be obvious, and it may take time to cultivate. The Rebbitson is walking in, so you can hear that. Hello. I'm the babe in this category, by the way, when, when Rebbitson said that. So um, yeah, so the market you serve may not always be obvious, and it takes time to cultivate, and it can change over time. Uh, and so that's an important thing. When we started Darshan Yeshiva. We thought we are creating Jewish leaders. And then it became people who were interested in converting, and that was that. 
So that's just a couple of examples real quick. Sarah, I would like your opinion on this. What do you yes. think? Yeah, I, I think it, it makes sense. It's, it's so weird to think about Jewish or Jewish related things this way is, as far as a, a problem to be solved or uh, in, even in terms of a market. It's kind of strange to think about it that way. But the way in the marketing world, this really resonates with me because um, the way that I like to do it, at least in my work, is thinking about what the person you're trying to reach what job are they hiring? This is the orange thing that you said. Yeah, Talk that out. Talk yeah, that out. sure. It's actually an interesting story that I cannot take credit for, but it's um, it's called The Theory of Jobs to be Done by Clay Christensen over at Harvard. It's famous in the marketing world. I realize not everyone is so tuned in as I am. But the main premise, is, and then I'll go quickly into the story, is there was a brand that was interested that actually sold um, milkshakes. And um, one of the interesting things about the problem was when we think of milkshakes as a treat or a dessert or something that you have um, kind of after a meal, but this brand was figuring out that they were actually um, having tons of sales in the early morning before 10 a.m. And so in trying to solve this problem, they were thinking about their market and doing research into why people were buying a milkshake at 8 a.m., and, because um, it's delicious. That's, that's why. <laughs> For sure. It's also could be problematic. But yeah. <laughs> they in a sense essentially what they found was that people were the majority of people buying these milkshakes had an hour long mm-hmm. And so what they were doing, they weren't buying even breakfast. They weren't buying dessert. They were buying something to keep them company or to keep them um awake and engaged during a really long drive. So when you think about it that way, a milkshake has a totally different purpose and a totally different way of, it's a, it's a totally different way to promote it when you think about it that way. And so your market is people who have long commute, not people who want to Right. It's not obvious. Nope. Yeah, it's not obvious. What you were saying about the idea of, you know, thinking about this sort of Jewish and market, um, the next slide I think is appropriate for this. So who is a Jewish preschool's market? So we think of it as like it's the parents with kids. That like obviously like obvious. that that would seem yeah. that way. So I sort of have this here in this list. I think children are actually the primary market, right? If the kids fuss and scream and make their parents' lives uh, a living hell, it's going to be very hard for the parents to engage with that product. Uh, now they may mm-hmm. do it for a short period of time. They may do it for a long period of time, but there's a cost associated. Cost isn't money. The cost is your kid is kicking and screaming and angry and whatever, right? And parents will say, like, this is why the candy aisle exists in the grocery store, right? The market is the kids, right? Or at least that was what it was envisioned to be. So ch- uh, children and parents, but also think about it, grandparents. You know, you can say, Mom, we decided not to do uh, preschool at the Montessori. We're sending our kid to. Uh, this Jewish program at a synagogue, right? And if you're a Jewish grandparent and you're filled with that sense of like, are my grandchildren going to have Jewish life? Being able to say to that grandparent, yes, and here's how we're going to do that, that's a big deal to that grandparent. If you look at Jewish preschools and day schools and all of that, you know, they're able to fundraise from the grandparents, right? It's not just give your, you know, give a donation to the preschool. You already are by virtue of paying tuition, right? grandparents will give 
because they're seeing their grandchildren have Jewish life. It's, you know, yes. Hanukkah comes around and the grandchild knows what a menorah is, right? Like that's, that's the market. Grandparents are the market. In fact, there was one sort of very, I felt like this was not appropriate, but I get the marketing genius who said this. They did a session on Jewish education and it was, uh, dear grandparents, will your ch- grandchildren be Jewish? And like, that's Powerful. such a gross, I mean, I just, <laughs> I thought that was, but you get the point. Um, synagogues, right, are a market for Jewish um, preschools. Like there are actually Jewish preschool programs that are now operating in conjunction, they're independent, operating in conjunction with synagogues. The synagogues can't run their own programs, so you have a third-party provider at that point. Um, a city. A city benefits. I know now it's getting abstract, but like a city benefits from a Jewish preschool. So being able to say our city is so diverse, we just opened the new preschool. Like what mayor would love that if you send a press release? Anything else? I don't know. That's that's my list. Is there any other oh. market that a Jewish preschool might benefit? I mean, if you're if you're getting really abstract with city, I mean, you could even have school board or some other organization that's related to education in your neighborhood right. or your area that right. like the more people, the more kids who are in school, it, this also depends on the mission of the school, but the more people who are in school, the more market there is for more education. So like right. that's an go. interesting network effects type thing happening. Right. Um, but I mean, that's above and beyond. It could probably go even further. I mean, the more children who are educated, perhaps they're more of a market for, smart toys i mean it's the holiday season here right now but like that's something that could be of note to somebody else too it's the theory of change like absolutely no that totally makes sense but see it's funny because we can actually see this ripple effect out whereas if all you're focused on is let's say how do we get it is it's one of the things i hate is the phrase how do we get because Mm -hmm. when in jewish life in jewish nonprofit life we say how do we get you're already losing like at that point you've already lost the game um, because you're starting with the wrong premise, which is there's things you provide, and then it's a question of how do you sort of trick people into coming or doing or, or whatever. Um, but if you start with this market approach, people in theory should already be excited about what you're doing. It's, it's an easier time of it. Um, so this was a really great example. There was um, the shooting in Pittsburgh, and someone came to an event we did in our home. This is part of Kihila that uh, we had a memorial sort of healing service and someone came up to me afterwards and said, I'm not Jewish, uh, but I wanted to be part of something and show support. So who would have thought that actually the market in a way for this thing that is a very Jewish thing was someone who said, I've been watching the news and I have all this angst and I needed a way to honor people and to participate in that. So it's just another example of like we're getting super surreal with like a school board and a city and educational toys and all this other stuff. But like this is real. Yeah. Like it has absolutely. it has real consequence in the world. Yeah. The, the aspect of belonging to something. I mean, there you go. You know, the, the nature of the world right now is so interconnected and it's a it's a cliche almost. But like we're also disconnected more than ever. Yeah. And so this is actually a tangential potential market is like. You're providing an open community. Right. That is nuts to me. But it's it's really good news to know that people are, it's actually something people are searching for. Yeah. It's not incidental. It's not 
someone got me right. and brought me in. There was they actually sought it out, and that's someone who's a, potentially a loyal member of whatever you're trying to build. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I don't know if I'll see this person again, but if they show up two, three times, I'm going to end up engaging with them in a different way. And suddenly they may be like, you never know they were actually interested in becoming Jewish or you never knew that their, you know, great uncle was Jewish. And like, this is something they're kind of into now because um, you haven't gotten that deep into who that person is and, and what matters to them. Uh, they had a Jew, let's say they had a Jewish best friend growing up, like, and maybe yeah. that just resonated with them. They were thinking about that kid they went to school with or the girl in their neighborhood. Like, so you never know how something like that can, can touch people. It's pretty profound. Um, so how do we estimate markets? Um, I think geography and traditional demographics are becoming less important. Absolutely. So I'd be curious to ask you, this is this is a little bit of a loaded question, but um, there there are sort of organizations, media outlets, whatever, where it's about Jewish women. Like we want to engage Jewish women. Have you found that that resonates with you at all? And maybe it does, and that's okay. Having now, like, just said that I don't believe it works, but like, but does it? Has it worked for you on some level? It depends. It depends on what they're going after. I mean, I know that somebody, I, I wouldn't have found it if it wasn't for social media, such as Facebook or something. So I know that perhaps somebody there had audience targeting for 30 something women who have ever posted about Israel. Like, that's enough to do. Um, but yeah, I, I think... I promise you, if it's what I'm thinking about, it wasn't that sophisticated. <laughs> I'm just thinking, because that's where my brain's at, so I'm right. thinking, if someone could at least do that. Right. Um, but it's not always the thing that I want to interact with. Sometimes it is, and sometimes it's more of a surface-level thing I just want to be aware of. It's Like what, for example? Can you think of something? Something I want to read about, or something okay. I want to keep in mind, you know, if I'm, you know you're in a small market here, like, you know, feeling like a minority of a, you know, potential, you know, a women group, like that, that seems okay. It's, there's some feeling of belonging there, mm -hmm. but I don't, I'm not convinced. I'm, I'm not either volunteering with any of these organizations or money at this time. Right. Um, but I check in, I read things. I like some things. Um, I'm, no one's certainly being, I'm not, monetized. no one's monetizing off of me. So, um, I'm not so sure. And yeah. I, it's weird that it's weird. I hadn't really thought about that before. Yeah. I'm not certain that I can, I can name any organization. Now you think about Well, it. there you go. So that's how we know that even though you're a person who would be like more sort of clued in, yeah. it, it, it's not the case. Like it's not the case that that particular way of looking at you as a person, you know, that one element of your life is something that anyone's tapping into or for which there is a problem, you need a solution. Yeah. You know, you've admitted like it's nice to feel like you're a part of something, but you didn't say I desperately want to feel like I'm part of something or I feel a sense of lacking of belonging to something. Mm -hmm. True. And I, I don't know, maybe I'm going. No, I mean, that's I mean, where I am specifically at my point in my life right now. I, I'm I'm kind of good right now. But yeah. If I, but yeah. if something could potentially change where I'm thinking about it in the future. Yeah. I don't see why not. Um, that's, I think that's a, a, an interesting thing to remember kind of as a whole is like, just because it's not evergreen forever throughout your life, which is kind of crazy to think about, doesn't mean that it's not valuable, but that's more of the importance of target. Right. Exactly. So. You know, and also the other thing too, is to remember that Jewish life is small. We all know this. 
Um, so you have to look beyond a Jewish market if you can. So there's a JCC that has a uh, preschool. It's a very active one. And I think something like 40 to 60% of the kids in the school are not Jewish. Um, and it's because the surrounding programs are, they don't offer the things that the other, that this particular school does. Um, there's also a lot of preschools that are evangelical in nature. So if you have a parent who, you know, doesn't want to send their kid to the Baptist school or even the mainline Protestant school, for them, and we know this, is it's sort of like, well, yeah, the Jewish school is cool. Like, I'll send my kid there. I actually know yeah. someone who was raised a Methodist and went to a Jewish preschool because they were like, that's the best preschool. Like, that's the one we want to send our kid to. So uh, the example I've used here in the slide is from the book Kosher Nation. The kosher food and seeking out kosher food is actually, in America, more common among Hindus and Muslims um, than it is among Jews. Very few Jews keep kosher in America. Um, but it's this belief, first with uh, Hindus, I think in more specifically Jainists, I hope I'm saying that right, um, who are very strict vegans. Mm -hmm. um, so they want to make sure there's no animal products in their food. Uh, Muslims, uh, if you can't get halal meat, kosher meat is considered religiously acceptable in Islam. Uh, so there you go. So the kosher meat market or, or whatever uh, is, is being supported by Hindus and Muslims and Jainists and vegans and all of that, you right? Support the clean food movement. Right. I mean, there's there's so many applications there. Well, and that's interesting because if you look as of right now, Hebrew National used to be answering the the slogan was answering to a higher authority. Their new thing is it's kosher, so you know what's in it. I so, think I did see that. Isn't that interesting, right? And, and that you can talk about secularization and all that, but like. But but that's interesting, right? So they're yeah. saying it's it's clean. You know what's in it. Like yeah. obviously, if it's kosher hot dogs, like it must be right. It's, it's obvious. Mean, you know it's it's obvious. You know what's in it. Right. Um. So really interesting ideas. Um. So a couple of things. One is the who is willing to pay you urgently, and who are the low hanging fruit. Uh, those kind of go hand in hand together. The example of conversion. I keep coming back to it. It was easy for us because those were the emails we got. When we started our distance learning uh, adult education program, people said, great, but what about conversion? And we said, we don't do that. And then it was, okay, well, when are you going to? Right? Like this, you know, so, and that's not always the way you want to run a business, but, um, or a nonprofit. But I think that's, that's just an easy thing to do. That's an easy starting place. And none of these are perfect, right? None of these, and none of these are going to work out every time. The low hanging fruit for synagogue life is people who are unaffiliated. But that's, that doesn't necessarily mean anything. They can be unaffiliated because they don't want to be affiliated. So that's not necessarily obvious, right? It could actually be that affiliated people are a better group to reach out to. Maybe it's easier to get someone to belong to two synagogues than it is to get someone to go from zero to one. I don't know, but it's an interesting question. Um, what is everyone else doing? Who's not engaging them? Why? So that's... That's that example uh, that I just gave, right? Just because you don't belong to something doesn't mean it's because you haven't found something for that person. And this is something that a lot of people who start their own Jewish community struggle with. Um, someone once said to me years ago, there's just not enough Jewish things in Chicago for young adults. And it's that's like, that's blowing. Yeah, that's insane. <laughs> it's insane that anyone would think that. I mean, it's it's like such a saturated market, um, but it was because they hadn't found the thing they liked. 
And so obviously if they hadn't found what they liked, it's because it didn't exist. And there must be all these people like them who didn't, don't have this thing. And maybe that's true in some cases. Certainly we've seen it with some communities, but um, starting from the premise of if I want it or if a lot of people aren't buying into what someone else is doing, it must be because everyone wants what I want or yeah. there's all these under, it's really the underserved, like there's all these underserved people. That may not necessarily be true. I think it kind of goes back to some research of any kind that you can do. Um, because I think you're absolutely right. Some, what one person wants does not make a market. Right. Um, once you kind of get a, there's more about intent and what people are trying to achieve. Mm-hmm. And so if someone doesn't like the type of happy hour that's in their town, it doesn't mean there aren't <laughs> enough happy hours. It right. Means that, that's well, that's a good point. You know, um, we live in the land of happy hours too. So there you go. True. So it's, it's not always about the exact thing that they feel is missing. There's, you know, you could do some analysis, kind of back up the decision tree to figure out maybe there's a different path. Yeah. Or maybe, or, or none. I think that's an interesting alternative as well um, to consider that, the solution might be that there isn't a gap, just the market isn't, in, like, there's just not enough scale. Yeah, yeah, it just isn't going to happen. And if it needs to happen, it's going to happen in a much smaller way or in a different way. Um, yeah, it, it's a fascinating idea. Media can sometimes offer some insights, but it's it's insight, not prophecy. And sometimes people will take that a little too far. Um, so So I try to stay away from well, I've Googled it, that's not there. Or like, well, there was this article that said that X percentage of people in the Jewish world want such and such. Like a lot of those things are biased in one way or another. Uh, methodologies are terrible most of the time. So so be careful with saying, well, I read a study that said, okay, great, you read a study, but but don't 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 sort of connect your whole life to what a study um has to say. So um so this is a really great example. This is something that actually happened. Uh, so this is, do you want to be the older woman or the younger woman? Um, I can be the older woman. Okay, go ahead. All right. I'm not going to do any impression. Oh, no. I'm, I'm disappointed. I'm sorry. Uh, it's a shame you young people don't come to our synagogue. We spent millions to fix it up and make it nice for you. Thanks, but we didn't ask you to do that. So that's an actual, bomb. Con- that is an actual conversation of a synagogue spent millions of dollars to fix up their the synagogue and and they did all of these things and they got notoriety for it and and then this is an actual conversation that happened a few years afterwards but that I I over I became part of um and it's just true and now that can, synagogue is actually rebuilding again like they're doing yet another iteration of remodeling um so what? you know now it could well but here's the thing. It could be that they realized that younger market is not them and the older market wants a bigger building or a bigger whatever. And if they can make it work financially, then... A 20-year, 30-year solution. I mean, you best. know, who who knows, right? Or maybe they figured out the younger woman becomes the older woman and then wants whatever. I don't know. That's you, a good point. I, I don't yeah. know. Um, did, what did the older woman say after? Did you hear? I, I do not know. Oh. I think it was more of a, like like you said, truth bomb, and that was the <laughs> end of that. Um, so this is, we've already kind of stated this, which is if they're unaffiliated, unreligious, and are raising kids with minimal Jewish culture, then are they your market, or are they just not prioritizing your problem? 
wow, we just heard a really loud scratch. That was uh, the cat. So <laughs> that's what that was. Um, so again, like we've stated this, but just really thinking about the market. Um, a couple of case studies here. So we've moved past a couple of slides. So who who was the Jewish elder care market? So these are the Jewish old folks' homes. So multiple markets, the elderly, obviously those are the residents. The children of elderly parents, I'm the child of an elderly parent, so I understand that. Yep. And the Jewish community as a whole benefits from having a place where Jewish seniors who can no longer live on their own can have community. Uh, but what happens when things become a bit complex and demographics change? Well, this is the problem with the Jewish elder care model. Would you like to read the problems with the Jewish elder yeah, care model, sure. Sarah? Yeah, no problem. Um, so we assume that Jews wanted to live with other Jews. Fair. That seems to make sense. There were unique needs that Jews had that only a Jewish organization could meet. The community outside the elder care organization would want to support such an organization. Aging and its implications would remain relatively the same, such as Social Security. And funding would be relatively secure from Medicare, Medicaid, and nonprofits. Right. So now let's move down to the next slide. So we're on slide 12 at this point. So this is the assumption, the reality, and its implications. So uh, not going to reread what Sarah just read, but uh, let's say, you know, that we live in a more mixed culture now, intermarriage, all these other things. Um, Jewish cultural needs can be met in other ways. It doesn't have to involve living with other Jews. Um, you know, uh, institutions are less important to their primary market, um, and then they become even less important to the secondary market, right? So if my Jewish, uh, let's say, grandmother or someone like that uh, decides that they don't really care about living in a Jewish old folks home, then when it comes time for me to be asked, will I donate to a Jewish old folks home, it's not going to be relevant to me. I'm not right. going to be interested in that. Um Aging uh, 80 in 1960 is very different than 80 in 2018. Um, and then finally, changes to the social safety net, retirement, economies go through busts and booms. That affects a portfolio if you have people who've invested their money. Um, so what we end up with is these series of implications that, that just don't, don't work. Uh, so this is where then people double down and they say, no, we're going to make it work. Grants go flying all over place, but that's a doom and gloom scenario. So this is a an older uh, folks community that has now changed uh, their whole deal. It's this two life communities, and the link is available here in the slide deck uh, so that you can uh, learn more about that. But they you know, have a new name and a new brand. They're thinking differently about who they are, uh, and they're focusing on this idea of celebrating life, which is a really valuable idea. Um, just because that's the way they dealt with their problem doesn't mean that that's the way everyone should deal with their problems. But, uh, I mean, that's a way of thinking about it. I think something that's maybe a little closer to us, you and I, Sarah. So who was the Jewish young adult market? Would you read for us the, this market? Sure. Uh, Jews under 45, primarily mostly, who are interested in traditional Jewish prayer minion outside of a synagogue setting. Um, but what happens when the founders age out, new people come in, and the needs of the community are no longer being met? So great questions. So this is an actual uh, community that I belong to, um, and this is what they did. So they were a traditional, um, so some people would use the word orthodox, it was more conservadox in nature community. 
um, the trichitsa and all of that good stuff. Um, so let's look at what happened here. So it assumed there would be an ongoing need for non-synagogue-based religious programming. So religious programming, so not purely social, very specifically a prayer minion, a prayer community uh, for young adults, that the Carly Bach singing style of service was what was going to be meaningful, uh, that there never would be a budget as an organization, um, and they would do one thing uh, all the time, and that's all they would ever do. They would never change, never, because uh, clearly point one and point two would be the future. Um, and then eventually young adults would step in to do volunteer roles. So if people are volunteering and donating in kind, it lowers your budget, right? Because you don't have to pay that person to do something. You don't have to buy extra whatever. This is not actually true, but this is what people think when they start nonprofits. If I have enough volunteers and I have enough in-kind donations, I don't have to put it on books. But you do, because if you didn't have those paper plates, you would have to buy those paper plates. Right. So it's not something that can't go in a budget. You have to budget for the paper plates that Sarah brings, because Sarah brought the paper plates and you would have needed them. Yeah. And that's something that sometimes in the nonprofit world we forget to do. You kind of have to have two books. One is the money books and the other is the, the stuff books. It's like the cost, cost and the actual outlays. Yeah. It's, like a, it's a, an accounting issue. Yeah. That's okay. It's, it's incredible stuff. But this was what they were assuming. So we end up on slide 16. It's the same scenario, right? So the needs of this community were being met in, in other sources. So if you start in the 90s, by the time you get to 2010-ish, right, things change, right? People move, things like that. Uh, you know, we as, as uh, rabbis and potential rabbis, students, we know what a Karl Bach minion is. Sarah, do you know what a Karl Bach minion is? I really wanted to look it up before I got here, and I did not. <laughs> well, so exactly. So if I said to you, Sarah, look, we're friends. We've hung out. We've been to a foreign country together. Right. Come to the Karl Bach minion. I don't know what he is. Right. So your initial answer isn't going to be, hold on, let me Google that. It's going to be, I'm busy. Right? And then later you'll Google well, it, it. And it then... It makes me feel kind of weird. Because, like, yeah. I, know, I, you know, I was bought this, but I can be part of a minion in... Like, in certain communities, in certain communities yeah. most like, communities. I'd be like, I don't know what, uh, what does that mean? What is that what, asking what, of what you? What kind of minion is that? It sounds, yeah, it's, it's not very attractive. Right, and so that's oh. what happens, is that community changed, and, you know, and so over time, the, the community, I don't even mean the prayer community, I just mean the people in the surrounding area, yeah. and like what young adult needs were. Um, people were not stepping up to fund the small budget, uh, because the importance of fiscal responsibility was downplayed, right? So this goes back to the whole idea of, of how did you say it? The, I think I said uh, like a cost versus outlays. Right, cost versus outlays. I like that. Yeah. The, fantastic. So that's exactly <laughs> it. Um, and then the other thing was, if you have a Karl Bachmann, so the way they did it is what's called the trichitsa. So you have, and this was an assumption from way back in the day that then evolved at least they evolved this much. So you have a mechitza. So a mechitza is a division between men and women, yeah. Um, so they had the trichitza, and it's also called the California uh, mechitza, where you have mixed seating between the oh, men and the women. Okay. Yeah, so it's a really interesting idea. Okay, but like, okay. if you don't have a way of teaching someone what that is, if you don't have a way of teaching, like, that the service has three parts, and, you know, here's how you sing the first part. Here's the second part is giving the Devar Torah. Like, how do you give a Devar mm -hmm. Torah? 
And then the third part is Marif. So how do you lead Marif? And how do you do that? I mean, anyone can do it if you sort of pick and choose pieces and you know the parts you know and you sort of make, you build a service. That's not what this was. It was a, we start with the first psalm and then we end with Adon Olam and it's one straight shot and it's all in Hebrew except for the Devar Torah. So if you don't know those things and you don't have a way to be taught, you're not going to- You can't catch up. You can't catch up, can't join, can't whatever, right? So then what happens when the few people who know how to do that and knowing and willingness are two different things, right? I knew how to do the, the service. I didn't want to lead it. I have a horrible singing voice. <laughs> I blew out my vocal cords being in punk bands. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, so I gave the Devar Torah, but that's an easier thing. Like, it's easier to say to someone, will you say three to five, like, sentences about the Torah portion? They could just print something off the internet. It's fine. You know, if they're comfortable with that. But uh, so that's what ends up happening. And that's how you end up losing that community. Um, it was doom and gloom. So now on the next slide, you find out the community lost its founders. Therefore, it lost its people. New came who enjoyed the Karl Vox service, but they weren't leaders. The religious dynamics changed. It went from orthodox, basically orthodox to conservative to a mix of conservative and reform and unaffiliated and sort of couple of secular-ish people who just wanted to do young adult stuff and then quickly fled when they realized that this wasn't really their, their thing. There were new organizations that did young adult stuff. So if you were a person who only came for the young adult and you kind of suffered through the service component, you were able to ditch out. Right. Like, it was easy. Um, there was also traffic and other non-organization issues that threatened the community um, because where it was situated, traffic became a nightmare. Um, and so huh. it's like, okay, okay, well, now it's impossible to get to this thing. And, and you may not like it when you're there. Yeah, so yeah. how are you going to feel? Well, yeah. the last bullet. Yeah, the last <laughs> bullet point, right? Yeah, and, and like, even if I had convinced you, let's say in the scenario we're back in my old city, and I had managed to convince you of like, no, it's okay, you'll like the service. Well, even if you don't like the service, you'll like the people. Well, now the people are changing, and blah, 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 blah. And you have to drive an hour. And now you have to drive an hour. Yeah. Right? That's yeah, and, and it was, and that, <laughs> that ended that. So um, getting back to market estimation, and Sarah, I'd love, uh, love you to sort of read through this and just, you know, you, you give your thoughts. What do you think? Are we on the right track here? Uh, yeah, I think, I think there's some really good um, tidbits here to start thinking about this, because I think just as an overarching theme is it's not something that you necessarily find out the minute that you start thinking about it, it's not something you can come up with. Because then you come and you kind of go back to those problems that those say, oh, well, if I don't like this, I should create it because it's a thing. Right. And there's lots of work that goes into it. There's lots of problem solving that goes into it. So that actually kind of goes into this first bullet here. Going back to geography and traditional demographics kind of decreasing in importance. I mean, that's part of a traditional marketing problem in other areas of of society now, um, it's all about what problem are you going to be solving for that person. So I think actually part of the market estimation and one of the concepts that is important in my work and in other marketers' work is developing a type of persona or a grouping of personas that are relevant to what your offering is. And when you get really, really dialed in with that persona, you can actually predict and map out the problem that they have. And so I think it's really critical to focus on the problems that 
um, your market's going to be wanting you to solve for them in order to be relevant. Um, Jewish life is small, so the quote-unquote Jewish market is something that you should definitely consider, but like many of the examples we were talking about before, um, how in what world could you actually connect a Jewish day school or a daycare to Hasbro or the toy market or whatever you want to call it? <laughs> Um, elder care is another great example too, where, you know, a really great retirement community is a really great retirement community. And regardless of if it has a Jewish background, that's great. But, um, that, that's like a way to hedge against that really, um, it's a, it's a risky proposition to only say that this is just for Jewish people who want to be with Jewish people. So, um, expanding your mind, even if it's just for an exercise to help you get that focus is great. Um, who is willing to pay you urgently, um, pre-existing organizations, non-Jewish needs like childcare, housing, food. We've circled around these examples again. Do you want to, um, go back to any points with this one? No, I mean, I think, I think we've covered it, but really this is the idea of being paid urgently, um, comes from a quote, uh, that I heard secondhand from the founder, one of the founders of MailChimp who said uh, that the question that that he asks or was asked is who is willing to pay you right now? And yeah. so, and, and that that's sort of a way of thinking about what kind of project you want to get yourself into. And it's not, and this is the thing I want to, well, I want to stress. It's not about the money. That's not really what it is. It's about knowing that the value you're going to provide uh, as a, as a rabbi is going to be something that's sustained. Yes. That's what's up. Money is a way that yes. people vote for what you are doing. It also happens that that vote can pay your rent. And that's that's an important thing to remember is that it's not about dollars in. It's about knowing that what you're doing is being valued, um, not for the even just for the work, but for your own sake. No one wants to go to work and be demoralized every day. So why not do this in such a way that you don't have to feel demoralized? And if that means you have to think differently, then that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. Um, who are the low-hanging fruit? Um, the people who need you urgently. These two things are really closely tied together. Um, but it's thinking about someone who's going to respond to your event now. That's an important person for you to target and actually speak to and kind of get their story. Because I think it will give you lots of insights. Um, looking at what everyone else is doing again, who's not engaging with those people and why? Um, so in that previous synagogue quote, the young woman who's saying, well, we didn't ask you to put millions of dollars into this new renovation. And that person was very involved in the Jewish community. I mean, you know, the story a little bit better, um, than I do, but like, that's to me, I'm, I'm already have, I have several people coming to mind in my life who are that person. Oh, really? Yeah. Who are not synagogue attendant people, mm-hmm. right. but who are incredibly involved in social justice and other types of organizations, um, nonprofits and whatnot. And yeah. like, like people who I consider to be the Jewish one of my <laughs> friends. <laughs> um, so right, right. How, how can those two things be together in the same thought process? Right. So, right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and again, a really focusing on the effectiveness of research is going to be critical, but media, social media, likes and one-off reports can help you get some directional insights, but they, they're not prophecy. They're not, they're not your catch-all. Yeah. It's, it, it, like people are, 
people are your customer. It's weird to think about it in such yeah. simplistic terms, but a person is your target. Right. And how do you learn about what you're actually offering and actually what they think about what you're offering? So you have, yeah. that's important. So it's better to talk with people. Absolutely. It is. And so what does that mean? How do we talk about problems with people? That's going to be next. Sarah, thank you so much for being here. Yeah. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on.